Eric Estep here. One of my favorite parts of being a NASCAR fan is collecting diecasts. It's how I got my start on YouTube, actually. To me, a room is not complete until it features shelves of NASCAR diecast cars. It's as good a time as ever to continue your collection or begin an all-new one by pre-ordering your favorite driver's 2022 next-gen diecast at LionelRacing.com or at any authorized Lionel retailer. Lionel is the official diecast of NASCAR, and don't miss Lionel Racing's NASCAR Authentics diecasts at a Walmart or Target near you. Not only is Lionel the official diecast of NASCAR, but they're also official supporters of the Out of the Groove Podcast Network. So what are you waiting for? Head to LionelRacing.com to order your favorite driver's 2022 diecast. It's true, the 1970s were filled with fads we laugh about. There was disco music, mood rings, CB radios in every car, bell-bottom jeans, tie-dye t-shirts, and leisure suits. And there was also the Pet Rock. Yes, the Pet Rock. In that era of NASCAR, only 10 teams were considered powerhouse operations that could win each week, leaving 30 teams remaining in the field, hoping for good finishes. They were petty enterprises. The Wood Brothers, Junior Johnson and Associates, Nord Crosskoff's K&K Racing, Penske Racing, Diegard Racing, Budmore Engineering, Haas Ellington Racing, and late in the decade, Rod Osterlund Racing. It was still an era when true Chevrolets raced against true Fords. Fords against Dodges, Dodges against Plymouths, Plymouths against Mercury's. And then for about a three-year period, American Motors Corporation fielded Matadors through team owner Roger Penske, driven by Mark Donahue in 1973, Bobby Allison and Gary Bentonhausen in 1974 and 75, and then Bobby Allison again fielded and drove the Matador in 1977. The drivers kept fans on the edge of their seats. They were the Allison brothers again, Bobby and Donnie Allison, Buddy Baker, Neil Bonnet, Benny Parsons, David Pearson, Richard Petty, Darrell Waltrip, and Cale Yarborough. They were the best drivers of that era and the best cars. They were the winners each week, and those challenges led to championships in the 1970s. Betty won five titles, Cale Yarborough won three, Benny Parsons won one, and Bobby Isaac won one. It didn't matter to the fans that many of the top cars in the top 15 could be many laps down when the checkered flag fell. The racing was intense. The drivers drove every lap like it was their last lap. The purses were lower. The pit crews were quite a bit smaller in number, but it was much different scenario than it was today. Sponsors were different. Maybe the fans were even different, but the joy of seeing 40 cars fight for position at Darlington or Daytona or Charlotte that wasn't different. Engines roared in chorus just like they do today. That's what made racing so incredibly special then and what makes it so incredibly special now. Fans would go down from the stands to meet their heroes and shake a hand and get an autograph. And what a wonderful time it was. Yes, the 1970s in NASCAR was a simpler time, but hard racing and putting on a great show was a top priority.
Hi, everyone, and welcome back to a Lifetime in NASCAR podcast. I'm Jerry Bonkowski, along with my good buddy, Ben White, and we are up to episode number 54. That's what this one is, episode 54, and glad to have you here listening in. And we've got a lot to talk about. Our, our big topic of the day that I think you're really going to enjoy, we're going to get to that momentarily, is the super teams, the big teams, the powerful teams, the powerhouse teams, if you will, whatever adjective you want to use, of the 1970s. And Ben has done a great job, as usual, with his research in that. we got a lot of good stories to talk about that as well. But we're going to, we're going to change things up just a little bit for this show because the number 54 as has been a few, the case in a few other numbers we've done over the last, uh, probably the last eight to 10 weeks, uh, has not really been the most successful number in NASCAR in terms of wins. And Ben, as usual, did a great job in researching it. And you might be a little surprised that the car number 54 has only visited Victory Lane just a handful of times. Ben, first of all, welcome to the podcast as usual and another great job on the research. Tell us about the car 54. I mean, uh, not a lot of wins, uh, but, you know, certainly it's it's had its place in the sport. Tell us about the number 54. Well, yeah, Jerry, uh, uh, it has had some a few wins, actually three wins to be exact, uh, and a couple of memorable ones. Uh, there was a, a driver by the name of Jimmy Pardue back in the 1960s. Sadly, Jimmy lost his life in a tire test at Charlotte Motor Speedway in 1964, but he did win two races in the car number 54. Those wins came at Southside Speedway at Richmond, Virginia, May 4th, 1962. And then it was a track called Dog Track Speedway, Moyoc, Virginia, uh, and uh, July 11th, 1963. And those are the two, actually, Moyoc, North Carolina. I apologize. I wrote that down on my notes uh, incorrectly. It was in North Carolina. July 11th, 1963, those were the two uh, races that Jimmy won, but there was a big win for Lenny Pond uh, at Talladega uh, Super Speedway. Back in those days, it was called Alabama International Raceway. That came on August 6th, uh, 1978. And, you know, Lenny ran the number 54 for many years from about 1973 uh, until about 1980, I believe, for Lenny. And that was a, a big number for for Lenny, because like I say, he ran the number 54 as an independent driver. When I say independent, he was a driver that did not have a lot of backing or any backing actually from Ford or Chevy or Dodge, uh, like say the Petties would have, or the Wood Brothers would have. When you say independent, that means that they're just running uh, without funding from those top manufacturers. But yeah, it was kind of funny because back in the uh, days of Lenny running that number 54, uh, before that, there was a television show, show called Car 54, Where Are You? And Jerry, you might have remembered that, but it yep. was, a, it was a, a comedy that was on and it starred uh, Joe E. Ross and Fred Gwynn. And people say, where have I heard the name Fred Gwynn? Well, actually, <laughs> he played uh, uh, Herman Munster in the, in the television show The Munsters a few years later. But it was basically a, a, a show about some uh, knock around cops uh, the, trying to be cops, I guess, is the way to put that. And they were just, it was a comedy and they were always in the wrong place at the wrong time. But Car 54, Where Are You? was just a, a big hit uh, in the late 50s. And then I remember listening to radio broadcasts and, and following NASCAR in the 70s as a fan. And that was what 
radio broadcasters would say, and that's what the fans would say. Big, big fans of Lenny Pond and the old catchphrase was car 54. Where are you? And that's exactly <laughs> what they'd say about Lenny. But, you know, talking about Lenny for a minute, uh, he ran that, that number, uh, for many years, uh, as I say, as an independent driver, but also he hopped in the car, the 43 car, uh, to, to, as a relief driver for Richard Petty, many times, I remember distinctly a few times during the Southern 500 at Darlington, uh, a couple of times when, when Lenny had fallen out and Richard needed a relief driver, they called upon Lenny to get in that 43 car. And he had a great relationship with the Petties. Actually, he went to Petty Enterprises to buy some parts for a late model car. And they got to talking about, well, you know what? You could just for the price of some of those parts that you're buying in that era, it's not a whole lot more money to go ahead and, and buy a, what was then called a Grand National car. So and talking to them, that's kind of the way his, his Grand National career, which is now the Cup Series, sort of began because he got to talking to, to them about some parts and some things that he needed to, to buy. And one thing led to another, and, and it kind of led to him coming into NASCAR's Premier Series, or what is today called the Cup Series. And so he hit it off with Dale Inman and hit it off with Richard Petty and uh, sort of a protege, if you will, of Petty Enterprises. And that's why I say several times during Petty's career, in the times that Lenny had fallen out of races, they called upon him to, to drive the 43 car for Richard and just a great relationship there. But when he got in the car in 1978, he had been driving for, uh, for himself and then got the chance to drive for Harry Rainier in 1978, which is a big step from where he was mm -hmm. and had engines from Waddell Wilson. And they, they put the number 54 on the car and it said, when incorporated, that was the, the name of the team at that year. And, uh, he goes out and beats the very best in the business at a place like Talladega. Sadly, that was the only victory that, that Lenny did pull off, but uh, you know, he was just one of those guys that you really enjoyed talking to. The last time I talked to Lenny was at Richmond, Virginia about six or seven years ago. And, uh, we were in a rain delay there at one of the night races at Richmond. He always enjoyed going there and we were sitting in the media center, just having a couple of, of soft drinks, just talking about life in general. And, uh, just, just a super individual. Sadly, we lost, uh, Letty about five years ago. Uh, he had passed away, but yeah, just, just a great guy. And he, you know, he spent many years working at a car dealership after his uh, racing career came to an end, but, uh, just someone that you would really enjoy sitting down and talking to about racing history and about his career. And he, he did it the hard way. He, he didn't have a lot of money, but he was out there every week, many, many, many starts in the cup series and just really miss him. He was, he's a fine gentleman and a great racer and someone I really miss. Right, right. You know, Ben, you know, talking about the 54, I mean, Lenny had, you know, he was actually the last, um, if you want to call it the last successful driver in that uh, drove the number 54. And, you know, there has not been a lot of drivers, especially over the last 40, 50 years that have carried that number. I mean, his last uh, top 10 finish was sixth back in, I think it was 78, but I'm looking at our, uh, you know, one of our favorite sites, racing reference that info. And, 
you know, Todd Bodine wrote, raced the number 54 for a couple of years, and that was all the way back in 2003. And then it, the 54 had not been used. This just boggles my mind because there's a lot, uh, a number of uh, gaps where the 54 was not used in cup competition or even grand national competition for that matter. Uh, for example, when Todd Bodine, his last race, and it was in 2003 at Homestead, the final uh, season finale, the, the 54 was never, had not been used then until, or was not used again, rather, until 2019 when J.J. Yaley and Garrett Smithley, they alternated for four different races. J.J. raced at Bristol um, and also Indianapolis, whereas uh, Garrett Smithley raced at Darlington and Dover. And that's been it. So, you know, the, 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 the 54 has had four, <clears throat> excuse me, 468 career starts in the cup series. But like I said, a lot of gaps there. And that kind of goes back to what we've said a number of times in previous podcasts that you have to wonder, is this, was this number, you know, and I hate to use that word jinxed, but it just was not a popular number. And I, I, I can never understand that how certain numbers that they, you know, they just don't take hold or after guys use them for a while, then there's a, like I said, a big multi-year gap where they're not used. They come back to use them. Then they go back again, another big gap. And, you know, like I said, be, be, after Todd Bodine's last um, race in the 54 back in 2003, we didn't see that number again until 2019. I mean, yeah. it, there's just no rhyme or reason for that. I, I, no, I can't understand that. No, there's really not. And I think uh, a lot of times it comes down to, uh, uh, you know, a lot of times maybe these drivers have used a particular number on a, on a short track or a late model uh, venue and maybe that comes to them that way. We've talked about how numbers uh, associate with sponsorships. Sometimes they come about that way. Um, it's interesting how, how it happens because some numbers are so successful, no rhyme, no reason, like you say, and then other numbers just kind of fade out into the background, into the darkness, so to speak. And, mm -hmm. and it just doesn't uh, come about, but it was so cool going back to the 54 with Lenny. I think it was that particular win, August 6, 1978. Um, I remember listening to the race on MRN. I was not writing at the time, but I remember listening to that and how sentimental that particular win was for Lenny because everybody in the sport had followed Lenny all those years and all the hardships and hard luck uh, that he had encountered during his career. I remember one time at the Southern 500, he had crashed really hard uh, was with another driver and just tore the car all to pieces, but he was the guy out there. He was beating on, on the chisel and, and trying to get the fender off the car and mm -hmm. in, in his driver's suit and helmet, he was one of the guys out there working on the car to, to get it back in the race. And just, you know, he was just as much a crew guy as he was the driver. And he, and, and there was another side story to this about Lenny and people might say, no, nah, there's no way that could possibly be true. But I know for a fact it was, he had a 1973 Chevrolet, um, Impala, I guess what it was, or maybe, a uh, it wasn't the, the Laguna at the time. It was, I guess you could say maybe a Chevelle. That's the word I'm looking for Chevelle. Mm -hmm. And it was kind of a goldish color, had the 54s on the sides, but the car was built now get this it was built in like an uh a eight by 12 shed behind his house <laughs> i'm not joking with you and they pulled the thing out at night and they'd work on it outside in the cold or the heat or whatever the case may be repairing it and then they'd slide it back in the shed 
overnight and shut the doors. And you think, nah, 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 come on, Ben, you're really making this up. It's like, no, I'm not. This thing was really small and that's all he had to work with. But he, he was one of these types of guys, the glasses have full and we're going to do the best we can with what we have. And he had the only, the one car and there are photos and I've seen them where he'd pull this thing out at night and work on this Chevelle in 73, 74, and he'd upgrade it to a 74 front end, same car. Mm-hmm. And he worked on this thing and this, it might've been, I'll give him a little more than that. It might've been a 12 by 16, but it was so small. It was like a, a shed that you would park your car in behind your house. And that's, that was his race shop. And you think about these race shops today, mm-hmm mammoth mammoth beautiful race shops well that's what lenny worked out of is this 12 let's just call it 12 by 16 it was very very small small enough that you really couldn't work on the car inside of it you'd have to pull the car out as i said before and uh but that's how he did it and then he would the trailer was parked to the side of the uh of the building and it was one of those tow type trailers that you hook to the back of a truck not what you see today. So many changes between the seventies and, and what you see today, but he'd haul that car, whether it be Michigan or Daytona or Texas or, or Richmond, wherever Darlington, wherever they were going, he'd hook the trailer in that car to the back and he'd take off. But I kudos to the man, because I mean, he made it work and he, he proved that you could do it out of one of those small shops. And he had four or five volunteer guys helping him each week that would pit the car and, and work on the car at night after they came home from their normal, regular 40 hour a week jobs. Right. And, uh, just very loyal to Lenny and his dream and what he wanted to do with his, his, his cup series or then grand national career. But I just remember thinking, Lenny, there's just no way you could build a car in a place like that, but he did it and did it successfully. And, and like I said, when he went to Harry Rainier's team in 1978, it had to have felt like, I've died and gone to heaven now because <laughs> I've, I've got all these crew guys. I've got these top notch cars. I've got what L Wilson engines. And of course there was pressure to win, uh, uh, by going to such a team like that. And he did at Talladega beating the best in the business, but it didn't, it didn't last. And, and he was not able to keep the ride after 78, but anyway, I can't say enough good about Lenny, but if you want a, a definition of perseverance and a de- definition of dedication and somebody who just really wanted to make it work, Lenny was the guy. And I, I can't say enough good about him. I'm sorry. We lost him to, to cancer about five years ago, but what a what a great individual. And just, a uh, someone just that if you want to look towards someone to say, if he can do it, I can do it. That that's Lenny pond. Right, right. You know, you you raise, <clears throat> excuse me, you raise a good point about not just Lenny, but, you know, small, especially independent drivers of that era, you know, we're talking the 50s, 60s, 70s, mm-hmm. uh, into the 80s. I mean, even to this day, I mean, if you really look hard enough, I mean, we're talking the smallest of grassroots tracks, you may find um, similar, uh, and we're not, I can't even call them haulers, they're more like tow trucks, if you will. Um, and, and one thing I've always wondered about, you know, like you were mentioned about how he would hook up his car behind, um, you know, his, his tow vehicle and, and tow it around the country. 
How did the the old uh, tow trucks? I'm not talking the haulers. I'm talking about the you know the wide open, you know, literally like a tow truck. You know, they'd have some tires behind the driver's um, window. You know, the behind them. That's where the tires would be. But where would they put all the rest of the parts, or did they just not go with extra parts? You know, I mean, you know, like engine parts and things. I mean, obviously those not only are heavy, but they also take up a lot of space in a, you know, whatever vehicle you you're using. And especially if it's like a, uh, you know, like a tow truck type of vehicle, where did the, the teams back in the sixties and seventies and even the fifties, like I said, uh, where did they keep all their parts? Cause I know a lot of, fans today the younger fans especially who maybe you've just been you know in this sport for the last let's say the last 25 years you know they're so used to the big haulers you know with the big you know signage on the side and they're going up and down the the interstates around the country but back then in the day it was just you know literally a tow truck or something similar to a tow truck that would haul these things around where would they keep all their parts mm-hmm. at i'm curious well, you can kind of go in three phases here. Number one, uh, let's go back to, say, the uh, late 40s, early 50s. If you can imagine, you'd have, let's, let's say, a pickup truck, uh, and then you would have the car uh, tied to the back of the pickup truck or chained to the back of it, mm-hmm. and the back, the car would actually run on the ground itself. Okay, if you can imagine pulling that thing behind you wherever you're going to some short track, so you're you take the car out of gear, the race car out of gear, and you would all four tires would be on the ground to wherever you're going. Okay. Wow. That's, that oh. was, that would go on all through uh, the fifties, say to the early sixties. And then you would have, that's when you'd have a, a tow truck with a trailer behind it that you'd put the car on. And then you maybe stick some tires and tools and things in the back of the pickup. And then they graduated from that to what I would call, if you, maybe that's not the right word, but a wedge back end type truck. So you have a truck with a wedge type set up to where maybe you'd have some cars that would be towed on the back of the truck, but it's kind of a wedge back end, if that makes that's sense. That's what I was referring to, right? Exactly. That's right. what I was okay. talking about. Right. And then you went to that in the mid to late 60s. And then the early 70s, they graduated from that to, if you could imagine going to your local uh, U-Haul or Hertz type uh, place and you're going to get a 26-foot type trade truck of that nature, then you would put your tools and some tires and things of that nature in the back of that and then have a, a trailer attached to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's the way they did that in the early 70s. Uh, and then you then they graduated from that in the early 80s to just a... I think the best way to describe it would be like a furniture moving van, mm-hmm. no frills, no mm-hmm. spills, no frills, just some place to put your cases of oil and, and your, your tools and your tires and that sort of thing. But there were no, no lounges. And, you know, if you had a chance to look at what they have today, it's, it's basically a rolling shop and you could build virtually a, a car with what they have and they have tie, you know like front suspension parts and, and engine parts and i mean anything they need they could pretty well produce mm-hmm. but but back to the the early 80s i mean they could carry some parts with them and they had a spot in the top of the truck to carry a second car but that didn't really come along until like i say the early 80s before that if you wrecked something you just wrecked it and there was no place to put a second car so it was very primitive in the late uh, 40, early, yeah, late, late 40s, early 50s, 
And I, I, you know, I can't, I've often thought about that. I couldn't imagine driving, let's say from level cross North Carolina, where the Petty Enterprises is based to Islip, New York Mm -hmm. with a car attached to with a chain to the back of my, my car. I mean, a lot of times they didn't have trucks. So you'd have to call pull it with a car, a car with a car all the way to Islip, New York. And let's keep in mind, in those days, the interstate system had not been developed. So mm-hmm. if you, you know, I remember as a kid, real quick side story, I remember as a kid, we went, my, my grandparents lived in Austell, Georgia, which is right outside of Atlanta. So this is early 60s, late 50s, early, let's say 60, 61, 62. I remember it took us forever to get to Atlanta <laughs> from, from say where I live now in the, in the Lexington, North Carolina, Salisbury area. And it's like, my goodness gracious, it took, it seemed like it took forever anyway. And, you know, my mom would make this pallet of, uh, of blankets or whatever in the back of the station wagon and lay all four of his kids back there. We'd <laughs> sleep most of the way, but it just took forever. Cause we didn't have, you go so far on an interstate and it would just stop Yeah, because it wasn't built yet. So you'd have to go to all these like podunk towns all around to get to Atlanta. Not like it is today. It's like four and a half to five hours back in those days. It wasn't. So if you can imagine towing a heavy race car from level cross North Carolina, all the way to Islip, uh, New York, or all the way down to Savannah without an interstate. Uh, could you imagine how hard that would be to me? That would be how that just be horrible trying to do that. Then you go to this little racetrack and you race 200 laps and you might put 80 bucks or a hundred, but 125 bucks in your pocket. Yeah. And then you go back to wherever, or you might, and in a lot of cases, you didn't go home. You went to the next racetrack two nights away to uh, some other commerce, Georgia, or something like that. You went to another racetrack and another racetrack. If your car was able to be towed, then you had to fix it so you could tow it. Right. I mean, it just, it was not a happy life. I mean, it's so like a gypsy life. I've heard Kyle Petty would describe it that way. It was sort of a gypsy life. And there were no hotels back in those days. You didn't have chains of holiday inns and all these places like that. And there was no place to sleep. So I get this, this is, this is interesting too. We're getting off the beaten path here a little bit, but think about it. You you're a Lee Petty fan or a Curtis Turner fan or a fireball Roberts fan and the doorbell rings and you go to the door and there's your favorite driver saying, Hey, do you have a guest bedroom we can borrow? I mean, this really did happen. And these drivers <laughs> said, sure, come right on in. And we're just sitting down to dinner. Would you like to have dinner with us? Sure. Seriously, Jerry, this kind of stuff happened because there was no place to stay. Right. And they would go to these little small towns and they would basically, you know, the promoter of the racetrack says, Hey, I know somebody that is a great fan of yours. I'll call them and see if they have an extra bedroom. Great. And they would actually stay with some fans that, you know, and and get to know them. And then each time they would come back to that area, Hey, can you tell fireball we're ready for him to stay with us or or Lee Petty to stay? This is really true fact because like I say, in those days, there were no chains. There, There were no hamburger chains. There were no hotel chains. None of that kind of thing back in those days. There were a few hotels, but they were usually filled up by race fans who were there for races. And so it's just interesting. It was a very gypsy-like lifestyle for these guys in those days and very uh, spontaneous, uh, no way to 
to plan anything. You just showed up at the racetrack. Hope you had a good night. Hope you had money in your pocket. Hope your car, pray to God that your car didn't get the, not, the rear end housing stocked out from under it because you had to tow the thing to the next racetrack. And it's just a, a let's just say there was a lot of uh, angst and a lot of anxiety to this lifestyle. Right. Yeah. Well, let me ask you this. You, know, you raise a good point. You know, we're talking again, the forties into the fifties, but mm -hmm. you know, where you're either a, you're being towed by another car or a pickup truck or what have you. I mean, we're talking about the most bare bone, basic uh, modes of transporting a, a race car from point A to point B. But I've often wondered about this and, and I, we are getting off a little bit off the beaten path, but this is yeah. really, this is really intriguing me. So back then, 60, 70 years ago, well, actually more than that, probably, um, if you were a race car driver, you're towing, you know, you're, you know, you're, you're at a racetrack. Let's say you, you raised, you said Richard Petty. That's a good example. Let's say he's nice lip, uh, New York. He's got to get all the way to level cross. And let's say the car just gets absolutely demolished. It gets destroyed. How do you drive it back? I mean, do you try to fix it enough that it can roll? But what if, what if you can't fix the axles? What if you can't, you know, it can't be towed? What, what did they do back then? I mean, did they just junk the car and drive back home or without the car? My, I would believe that you'd be correct about that. I mean, there's, there's not a lot of options, really. I mean, right. I think you'd have to leave it. I think uh, make arrangements uh, somehow to come back and get it later. I don't know. That's a good question because, I mean, you're, you, have, you really had no options because, um, I mean, let's think of it this way. You get hit in the, in the rear section of the car somehow, and it just knocks the whole mm -hmm. rear end housing and everything i mean just really badly damages the race car there's no way to tow the thing home if you have no trailer so you park it at somebody's house I, I assume and maybe you come back later and get the engine and get the good parts or something off of it or i don't know that i mean you bring up a good point i that's the only way i could figure that they would do is just say hey look let me park it in your barn um, until I can get back up here or something and, and get it. Right. Yeah, seriously, I mean, you if you're going to tow a car, and I'm logically thinking here, if you're going to tow a car, I don't know what, 800 miles, it's going to be hard on the thing anyway on a good day to tow it that far. And uh, you, you got to have really good, uh, you know, rear end housing and, and make sure the uh, – everything's greased right and everything because you're putting a lot of wear and tear on the thing uh, after 200 miles or 200 laps at a racetrack then you got to tow the thing somewhere and uh yeah it, it, if you had a lot of damage to one you just gonna have to ask somebody can i park it in your garage or park it behind your garage or park it in your barn until i can get back up here because the motor might be really good and parts of the car would be good but today i have to make arrangements and that's what i was talking about the the anxiety of it, figuring out what to do, mm -hmm. uh, what am I going to run next week, uh, you know, that kind of thing, because that's their livelihood. That's the way they made their living. A lot of them, and you know, Lee Petty is is noted for uh, being one of the first drivers to, to make a living at this, and he was 35 years old when he started. I mean, a lot of drivers in that era stopped at 35. Right. He started at 35. So, yeah, and that's... I remember a couple of times very quickly, we can get back to our, what we had on our agenda here, but I just remember there was a race uh, somewhere up north. I had to look at my notes, but somewhere he, he flipped the car and told, just tore the thing all to pieces. And the the windshield area of the car, the windshield was gone, but the windshield area of the car 
looked like it was diamond shaped. I mean, because the, t the top was so badly damaged. Right. He finished the race, but you know they they were not able to tow the thing back home because it was torn up so badly, and uh, so they had to they had to basically honestly had to leave it up there and go back at another time next time they came up or something with a trailer some way to get the thing home because right. it was pretty well totaled he finished but all four tires were wobbling and the and the body was badly damaged and and oh by the way another side story to that story was a lot of times uh, sometimes those those people uh, the drivers would actually drive the car up there uh, in some cases they wouldn't tow them they'd drive them and they would race the car that they were mm -hmm. driving too some in some cases so that particular race, they ended up having to find a way home uh, or back to wherever because that was the car they drove there. Great. And according to Rex White, that was the car that they drove to the racetrack and they put numbers on it and raced it and he tore it up. So they had to figure out how to get to the next race because they had no <laughs> transportation. So that, this is how far we've come, ladies and gentlemen, from 1949 to 2022. Uh, back in those days, sometimes they would race the car they drove there. You know, if it's right. some of those long, long, long trips, they didn't want to tow. Sometimes they would tow them. Sometimes they just drive what they had, and then they would uh, they would race what they were what they drove up there. Right. So anyway, enough. But I mean, it's just interesting to talk about some of this and and how far we've come to from 1949 drive what you drive drove up there to what we're driving today. Big exactly. changes. Right. Yeah. I got one final question. We'll go back to what we were going to talk about. Yeah, uh, sure, sure, sure. Is there one guy, one team owner, driver, what have you, that is credited with bringing in the hauler into NASCAR? In other words, bringing, you know, you could put your car inside of it and like we have it today. I mean, is there one guy or did it just kind of evolve that way? I mean, any, any, you know, that's a great question. I, the one, I think the, the one team that really comes to mind for me, I got to go with Petty Enterprises on that because they were so uh, innovative. We're going to get into some of this in another section here, but they were so innovative uh, in bringing the best cars to the racetracks and in some cases heads above some of the other race teams. I got to go with the Petty Enterprises for being the ones that actually started that because they they were, well, one of the reasons they were bringing in more than one car, but, but I got to go back to 1955 a little bit too. And that's Carl Kikafer, who was a, a team owner. That was the, what I would call the first, maybe the first Hendrick Motorsports of the sport, or maybe, uh, you know, to say that they brought in the big trucks and the big cars mm -hmm. and the, the money into the sport for the first time. Uh, with Carl Kike for being the first ones to do that because he brought in his company trucks and put cars in the back of his company trucks, even though the back ends of the cars stuck out of the trucks, he was actually putting cars in those trucks. That was the first ones to really do it. And then as far as modern era, I would have to go with Petty Enterprises because they were, they just, they were prepared for anything and they were, they would come in well stocked as far as cars and parts and tires and these types of things thus winning the, the, the number of races that they won so yeah I and they could they could all, they also brought a lot of extra parts they actually sold to other teams too at the same time yeah they, they did yeah because they were they were chrysler's uh at track store if you will and the same way that holman moody was the uh 
the arm of Ford Motor Company as far as racing goes, the Petties were for Chrysler. Exactly. And so yeah, so they I would I would credit Petty Enterprises for that. But yeah, going back to Carl Kike for the he had everything. I mean, he was ten times uh, more prepared than most of the cars on the racetracks in the mid fifties. And that's why they won two championships, uh, with the best drivers and the best money. And then he won what he wanted to win and he proved he could do it. And he just immediately just vanished and got out. You yeah, know, exactly. I'm gone. See, right. I did what I wanted to do. Bye. And that was kind of the way it works. So that's kind of like right at, 56. Yeah. Right. That's kind of like Rod Asterlin. He came in, you know, he did what he wanted to do, wins the championship with Earnhardt. And then, you know, you, well, not even a, what is it, like a half a year or whatever it was after the championship, mm-hmm. they, you know, they, they lost their funding and he was gone and never came back. Yeah, well, no, I think he did, he did come back. Yeah. He did come back one for a short period after that. But yeah, I mean, it's kind of the same thing. I know what you mean. Yeah. Though, yeah. Yeah, he sold his team to J.D. Stacy, and Dale Earnhardt didn't know about it until he got to the track one day and said, hi, I'm your new team owner. <laughs> and he was not happy. And that kind of led to him going to Richard Childress in 1981. Right. It sort of set the stage for Richard Childress and Dale Earnhardt to team up again in 84, and the rest is history with six titles, but six more titles. But, yeah, it's he just walked, he waltzed into the racetrack one day and, he said, hi, I'm Dale Earnhardt. I said, who are you? He said, I'm your, I'm JD Stacy. I'm your new team owner. Oh, really? <laughs> kind of one of those deals. Right, yeah. right, right, right. Yeah. All right. Let's wrap up the number 54. The first start of the 54 was way back in 1950. Ben, tell us about that one. Yeah. Uh, 1950, June 18th, 1950, actually a guy named Ken Warmington. I've never heard that last name ever, but that's kind of cool. It was a place at Vernon Fairgrounds. Um, not exactly sure where Vernon Fairgrounds is, but it was the first time the number 54 had been used by a driver, as I said, Ken Warmington. And I was sure he was a warm guy. <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> never and, heard that name. I'm not trying to make fun. Just right, right. Never heard that name. And let's let's knock let's knock out our driver of the week and our track of the week because I really am looking forward to talking about our topic of the week. So, driver of the week and, and uh, track of the week. Who what are those? Okay, uh, Charlie Glotzbach's our driver of the week. You know, Charlie came in a very good driver in the around the tracks of Indiana, and he came into uh, the NASCAR series in the late '60s and was a successful driver. I think he won four times. Uh, in the cup series and he was uh picked up by junior johnson and the story there was when junior johnson well, let me back up a second junior johnson won a good many races in 1963 with the chevrolet impala the mystery engine of the chevrolet impala did extremely well in 63 and the chevrolet didn't have a lot uh going on as far as uh, a factory back situation uh after junior got out of the 63 uh, Chevrolet. And then, you know, the, uh, kind of an absence from 64 to about 1970. And then 71, Junior wanted to bring the Chevrolet back. And so Robert Yates, interesting story, Robert Yates works for Home and Moody uh, building Ford engines. And he could sort of see the writing on the wall that the Ford had done everything they wanted to do with Home and Moody. So the sales of race cars that were being built for Ford were sort of slowing down a bit. And so he was friends with Junior. So he's building uh, Holman Moody engines for Ford and during the day and going to Wilkesboro at night, building Chevrolet engines for Junior Johnson, trying to make this Chevrolet engine work. Right. Because they were having problems with it. Well, 
Charlie Glatzbach uh, gets in the car, uh, a Monte Carlo, 71 Monte Carlo, with number threes on it. looks very much like the car that uh, Junior Johnson drove in 1963. And so Robert Yates is very instrumental in building the Chevrolet engine again at night, working for Home and Moody. Freddie's going to get caught doing that. But he says in the book that I wrote with the Robert Yates, he said, I'm standing in the infield. I built all these Ford engines that's running out there, but I'm standing in the infield privately cheering this number three little Monte Carlo on because it's my engine in that car. And so Charlie uh, goes out and he didn't win that day at Charlotte, but he gave up a pretty good performance mm -hmm. in the number three car. And then that led to Bobby Allison getting in the car in 1972 and winning 10 races with Coca-Cola sponsorship, but Charlie was very instrumental in, in putting uh, Chevrolet back on the racetrack. And of course, a lot of Chevy fans were very happy to see the Chevy back on the car or back on the track in 1971. Uh, sadly, we lost Charlie, I believe last year uh, in 2020, but uh, just a great race car driver uh, that has had been around and a lot of ARCA racing too in the, in the, in the years. And, and there was another side story too. And when uh, Sterling Marlin was burned, uh, not, I mean, he was seriously burned, but not badly burned in a crash in 1991 at Bristol. Uh, Charlie came in at uh, junior's request and drove uh, the Maxwell house car for some races until Sterling could get back behind the wheel. I didn't know Very that. Very interesting, interesting story. Yeah, yeah sure did. And then uh, Charlie came back and I ran, I'm not sure the number five or six races until uh, Sterling could come back. Mm -hmm. But uh, yeah, interesting story with Charlie when he came back and helped get the Chevrolet back on the racetrack in 71. Okay. And, uh, and, and then we also have our track of the week and uh you, you, we, we agree to disagree on how we pronounce this first word, but go ahead. <laughs> yeah. Well, okay. Here's the deal. I live in Salisbury, North Carolina. We all, everybody in town says Salisbury. You say Salisbury, like the steak, Salisbury steak. Right. <laughs> so this is how we do it. Wait, 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 wait. You just said it. You just said Salisbury steak. I no, heard I that. Mean to. It's I a, heard it. It's my, <laughs> <laughs> it's my Southern, my Southern accent. That's what <laughs> <laughs> that's what it is but there is there was once a salisbury speedway <laughs> and it it's actually not not located too far away from where i live it's on highway it was on highway 29 coming into uh, salisbury and uh, there was a race even though there were many there were ra many races at the racetrack there was only one nascar race there it happened on sunday october 5th 1958 hmm. it the track was a 0.625 mile dirt track. So it's slightly bigger than a half mile. They ran 160 laps there. Um, and you know, I I've, I've wanted to do a feature on this racetrack for a local, uh, Salisbury magazine that I write for. The problem is we're just having a real hard time finding photos Yeah, because the, we don't, we are not able, I found a great deal of information about that race and about the track but we've not been able to, uh, to find any photos. The, the side story very quickly on this, this Bruton Smith who built Charlotte Motor Speedway and has built the Speedway Motorsports Incorporated, which owns, you know, Las Vegas, Sonoma, uh, all the, you know, the Speedway Bristol, all the Speedway Motorsports tracks. He was involved in this track uh, as a co-owner and this 
potentially could have been Charlotte Motor Speedway. Really? Uh, yes. And it was going to be Charlotte Motor Speedway, if you will. The problem was the person that he was in business with owned a lot of uh, property around the Salisbury area until he got into some trouble with the IRS. Mm -hmm. And when that happened, then Bruton wisely said, well, I don't want to be involved in that. And so he either, I think he bought his, somehow got away from the situation or had him buy him out some way. And he said, I don't want to be involved, which is wise. And like I said, on his part, and he said, I know where there's a tract of land about uh, 30 miles down the way that I'd like to maybe build my own speedway, thus called Charlotte Motor Speedway. But had that IRS problem not happened to this gentleman, then that very easily could Salisbury could have been the home of Charlotte Motor Speedway. Now, how, 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 long, was, how long was Salisbury? Okay, I'll, I'll, I'll give in. I'll say Salisbury. There we go. I say instead of Salisbury, I'll Salisbury. say Salisbury. Just say Salisbury <laughs> Salisbury steak. That's all you got to say. Okay. Salisbury. I, I still say Salisbury steak, but okay. Salisbury <laughs> okay. Speedway. How long was the place around? Well, it was built in about 19. This, this says 1958 is when the track NASCAR ran its one race. It was built in 19, late 1956. Mm -hmm. And it ran, they ran a, a few races on the track that were not NASCAR sanctioned. And then it went away after all this IRS problem. It went away pretty much pretty quickly in 1959. So I mean, wow, wow. seized and all. I mean, I don't, I don't know the entire story, but but once the IRS problems happened, it pretty well went away pretty quickly. I mean, it was sold and and uh, all the the money raised from that sale went to pay off some debt and that kind of thing. But yeah, once once all that became official and there was some money issues with it, it went away pretty quickly. Okay. But back back to that back to the race uh, that day. Uh, Lee Petty won the race. Buck Baker was second. Cotton Owens third. George Dunn was fourth, and Roy Tyner finished fifth. And uh, yeah, so Julian Petty, by the way, uh, was the team owner for Roy Tyner. He's the brother of Lee Petty. And, oh, I, didn't uh, know, I didn't know Lee had a brother. I did not know that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. So, I mean, there's your top five and there were a total of 30 cars in the race. And I was going to point out one other thing here, if I can find it. Uh, I'm not saying, okay. Uh, well, Richard, there it is. Richard Petty uh, finished 22nd and the car number he ran that day was car number two, not 43. So there you go. Interesting. Hey, hey, interesting. hey. All right. So, yeah. Now, we, we've spent the last uh, 35 minutes or so uh, leading up to the big part of the show today, the big topic. And this is a good one. I think fans are really going to enjoy listening to this part of it. We're talking about the, you know, I mean, so much is said today. I mean, it's, it's, it's so, for lack of a better word, normal to talk about the big super teams, you know, the Hendrick Motorsports, Joe Gibbs Racing, you know, uh, Richard Childress Racing. I mean, uh, on and on and on. We, we've had so much so much parody, so many different teams today that, that race that are very, um, you know, uh, for the most part, they're very close in terms of performance. Team Penske, obviously, another one too as well. But back in the 1970s, and this is our main topic of the of the day, is that there were not that many 
major teams and they, you know, you know, people talk today about, oh, well, you know, so-and-so team, you know, uh, they win too much or, you know, they win too many championships or too many races. But back in the day, in the 70s, there were, it's almost, it was even worse, if you will, in a sense, because there were only, you know, a handful of big teams that won the majority of the races and the championships. Let's, let's talk about the, 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 as I would call them, the super teams of the 70s, the big teams of the 70s. Tell us, let's talk about that, Ben. Yeah, sure. Well, leading the list, of course, is Petty Enterprises. And, uh, you know, Richard Petty had 200 victories during his career. And uh, it's a number I don't think anybody's ever going to touch because 200 wins in the Cup Series, uh, that's obviously a lot of wins. And 268 total victories for Petty Enterprises. That counts Lee Petty and and uh, Jim Paschal and, and uh, Pete Hamilton and Anybody, you know, uh, tiny lines, various drivers that have that have won for them. They they were in existence from 1949 uh, to 2008 uh, out of Love Across North Carolina, and uh, of course, a powerhouse organization for many many years. Started off with virtually nothing with uh, Lee Petty, as we said earlier in the show. He started racing at the age of 35. He did everything he could possibly think of to make money. You know, Kyle told me. Kyle Petty told me, he said he, they raised tomatoes, they ran moonshine, they, uh, they grew corn, they did all they could. And, and a, a side story to that was Lee Petty tried to race earlier uh, before 35, and he and a couple of brothers and a friend or two ran the car number 38 for a race or two, and it was a miserable disaster. He said <laughs> it just didn't work. And he, and had he not come back and tried again, who knows what the petties would have been known for because he would have, Lee would have not done it. Richard would have not done it. Kyle would have not done it at the late Adam Petty would have not done it. So, I mean, it was like, okay, a decision to come back and say, uh, I'm going to try one more time to make this thing called NASCAR work for me. And he went on to win, uh, uh, championships and, and races and 54 races and, and, champion two championships uh and so you know it it worked for for the petties and of course they were the powerhouse team and then you had the wood brothers uh glenwood leonard wood uh and that started ironically from a big oak tree in the front yard of of their home in stewart virginia i've talked to leonard wood about how his father had him you know, at seven years old, he said, I'd put my feet on the engine block and put my rear end on the fender and I would be able to, you know, turn wrenches on engines at seven years old. <laughs> well, and, he was smug getting those little crevices in that area, you know? <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and so, I mean, you know, just that's how that started. And there's a 10 year difference between uh, Leonard Wood and Glenn Wood. So when, when Leonard was seven, of course, Glenn was 17. He raced, by the way, a lot of people don't realize that Glenwood raced. He won four times in the cup series. And, right. and uh, so and then he turned his attention to becoming a team owner, just a powerhouse team owner and powerhouse team. And so if you look at the people that have driven for Wood Brothers Racing, it's like the encyclopedia <laughs> of great legendary drivers in right. that team. Right. right? right. So, so we're, and again, we're talking about the 1970s here. So, okay, so you got the Petties, you got the Wood Brothers, uh, you got Junior Johnson, who won 50 races of his own as 
as a driver before he turned his attention uh, to becoming a team owner in the late 60s. And Richard Howard, by the way, was a team owner, Junior Johnson, a team manager before Junior became a team owner. Uh, again, you know, he was a team owner in the early 60s, ran his own cars, and then became a team manager back to being a team owner. So you have those. And then, of course, Die Guard Racing, uh, Bill Gardner came in, had Darrell Waltrip driving his cars. Uh, Donnie Allison drove them, and then Darrell, and then Bobby Allison, and Ricky Rudd. So, I mean, there were just the point is that there weren't but about five or six teams. Roger Penske had the Matador, Bobby Allison. The 70s didn't have but say six, seven teams that were considered powerhouse teams. And the rest of the teams were good teams, but not powerhouse teams. You had, I want to add one more to that. You had Nord Kroskoff, who had Bobby Isaac and, and uh, Dave Marcus driving his car later on, Neil Bonnet. Mm-hmm. But the point is that you didn't have today. I think you've got 40 cars that literally honestly could win a, a race. Okay. We've seen that happen with uh, Michael McDowell, of course, winning the Daytona 500 last year. But, but in this era, you have to understand that these, they had six or seven good solid winning teams and the rest did not rank as a team that could win each week, week in and week out. Right. And so it's an entirely different dynamic than what you have today, but it was still exciting to see how these are, these teams could, could battle each other at the front later on, uh, in the early eighties is when Richard Childress's team became a powerhouse organization. When Dale Earnhardt came along, they ended up winning six championships together. Dale won his first title in 1980 with, uh, Rod Osterlin, who was he mm-hmm. talked about. So I'm trying to find a good way to describe it for people who were not there to see it. It was, and, and you think how in the world could this come down the pike like this? But you, as we talked about in previous podcasts, you'd have the first place guy, let's, let's say Richard Petty wins, Kelly Arbor's second, maybe on the same lap. Third would be Bobby Allison, maybe two laps down. Daryl Walter uh, in fourth, three laps down, Neil Bonnet, fifth five laps down i mean that was really the way it was it would happen right and you'd say oh my gosh how in the world but that's that was the the way they would finish many times but the racing was awesome the mm-hmm. racing was great and and you had true chevrolets going against true fords and true dodges and true plymouths and it was just an amazing era of racing to watch and I'm trying to find a good way to describe it. It was just so much fun to see this. And I've got vivid memories of when I was 11, 12 years old watching this. And the funny thing about it for me, you know, and my dad would say, why are you yelling at these guys? They can't hear you. <laughs> I still remember him <laughs> saying that. We'd be cheering them on, on, you know, at Darlington on the back stretch and yelling for our favorite guys. Of course they couldn't because they were in the cars and the loud cars and stuff, but it was so much fun to see the color, to see the excitement, to see the drivers uh, going at it. Pearson, Petty, Baker, Yarborough, Darrell Waltrip. Um, it's just a magical, magical time. And, and, but even though you had six guys or six teams, seven teams that could win, it was still fun. It was still, it was such a magical, magical time. I wish everybody could, 
just for one race, transport themselves, but hit the beeper, a little, a little Star Trek thing and go back, <laughs> you know, to pick a race and go back and be there for it. Because it, gosh, Jerry, it was so magical back in those days. You can still do that today. This thing called YouTube. Yeah, that's true. That's true. <laughs> that's but right. you know what? Feeling it, seeing it, living it. Yeah. Uh, I still feel it. I mean, I still get cold chills look, going back to some of those races and, and just living it and feel it and tasting the rubber and feeling the sun. And I could describe that. I mean, it's, you know, it's I, in my mind, I could go back to it and it's, so much fun to see those races and feel those races and uh but yeah th those six and seven teams were so good watching pearson win so many races at darlington uh, to the point where it made you mad you go <laughs> on sundays and daggone it he won another one here's you know we've come all this way to see him win another one he was so dominant winning 10 times at darlington uh but he was so so good there i mean a million stories i could tell you about that the 70s uh, and Betty Parsons winning for LG DeWitt in the 72 car. And anyway, enough, I'm rambling, but it was just so much fun. Well, I, I, let, me, let me ask you this, Ben. You know, to me, when I think of the 70s, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> pardon me. Uh, when I think of the 70s, I almost immediately started thinking about this was kind of like the precursor, if you will. Now, we had already had winston sponsorships in 71 but you mm -hmm. know it was the kind of the precursor to the big 80s you know and and you know that's when I, to me nascar really took off was the 80s going into the 90s and then of course you know into the 2000 and then you know, you know sadly in the you know 2006 2007 2008 2009 when the economy tanked kind of like what we're doing right now these days uh, with the war and everything um, you know, we, we, the, the, the popularity of the sport went away, but seventies to me was kind of the precursor to the even greater success in the eighties. Mm -hmm. Would you agree to that? Oh, I totally agree. And yeah, it was sort of the, uh, the opening act to a great concert. Yeah. That's the way I point. look at it. Good, right. Good. It's, good. uh, we were just getting going very, very well. And See, you still had in the seventies, you still had, you had the perlators and the STPs and, and the Coca-Cola's for Bobby, um, Allison, you had mm -hmm. some good sponsorships coming in, but you also on the back marker cars, you still had the Joe's, uh, auto care and, the, yeah. and the Bob's plumbing and those types of things on some of the back marker teams. But in those days, though, you, you could run, I distinctly remember, let's take early 70s, I, I really I distinctly remember Bobby Allison telling me that they could run an entire season in 1972 on $100,000. Wow. Can you imagine that? Wow. I mean, really, they could run an entire season because he took Coca-Cola one to give him $85,000 to run in 1972. And Junior wanted a hundred, and Bobby said, "I'll take fifteen out of my personal bank account to make the deal work." Wow, and that's a true, true deal. Now, <laughs> I, you know, you can't that's one a, race now. That's one days. race now. That's right. So, so going into the late seventies, I don't know what those sponsorships were, but I mean, you know, I remember, you know, and when Darrell Waltrip had to buy his way out of the out of the die guard situation in 1981 to go with junior Johnson, it was $300,000. He had to pay bill Gardner. So we're not, we're still not talking big money then. 
And then when you get into the 80s is when you start seeing an array of really big, well-known, well-noticeable companies starting to get on all the cars. Mm -hmm. uh, and so that in the 80s was kind of when the big concert happened. 70s was the, the opening act. 80s was the big concert. In the 90s, we really started hitting the big time as far as television, as far as bigger sponsorships, more money. Um, it, it, things were really rocking in the 90s. But but the 70s, though, it was starting to introduce people to uh, how NASCAR operated and what it was all about. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, 1979, I have to go back to the 79 Daytona 500 when we've talked about it and talked about it, but the, the major snowstorm, uh, everybody's locked in their homes. The big fight happens after the race. Petty goes to victory lane for the sixth time. And that really, that's not what NASCAR wanted. They were cringing in the, in the press box, but it's like, well, this is what helped get every NASCAR on the map. And so lots and lots of people had no idea what it was, but they were trapped and couldn't go anywhere and they got, had to see it. So again, the seventies was maybe a pivotal turning point for NASCAR, uh, in that, in that decade. But again, it was so much fun to watch real cars go after, I mean, a Dodge against a Ford and a Ford against a Chevy and a Chevy right. against a Plymouth and a Plymouth against a Dodge. And these guys were putting these cars out there and that sell them, uh, went on Sunday, sell on Monday thing really did work still. And, uh, but the, the, you know, the teams, their drivers, uh, you know, the, I don't know. It's, it was, I'm reliving it as I'm talking about it here, but Pearson against Petty, Petty against Kale, Kale against Dale, Darrell Waltrip, you know, all that stuff about, I wrote something recently about how Darrell Waltrip and, and Kale Yarbrough went at each other verbally. And that was the time when the movie Jaws was out. Yeah. I remember that. Yeah, right. I remember that. Right, and, right. and, uh, you know, Kale Yarbrough had tagged Daryl Waltrip with the name Jaws because he was just kept running his mouth all the time. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, and that all started from the 19, I think it was the 1979, no, no, 77 Southern 500 when he and Dale, DK Ulrich and Waltrip got into a crash on the backstretch and DK went up to Kale and said, why did you wreck me? And Kale said, I didn't wreck you. Jaws got you. He said, what do you mean? He said, Jaws, Waltrip, Waltrip, Jaws, Waltrip got you. I didn't hit you. Waltrip did. And that's how the name Jaws stuck. Right. So as part of that, you know, how Humpy Wheeler was, he was a great promoter and president of Charlotte Motor Speedway. He, he latched onto it and he got a buddy at uh, Myrtle beach who, who was fishing for shark. And so they got a record truck and a big chicken and a, and a shark. And they pulled that thing around Charlotte motor speedway at pre-race anything they could do to, to hype this shark, this jaws thing up, you know? And, uh, anyway, this stuff like that, that, that I don't know if they even think about doing something like that today. Oh, it's too but politically it's, correct these days. I mean, you've got to you've got to make sure that you don't do anything that you know infuriates or even raises a question from your sponsor. You've got to toe the yeah. line, especially like when drivers are interviewed on on either TV, radio, or or print uh, or slash internet. I mean, they've got to be very um, on message, on target with their message. You know, they they, right. they can't say anything negative about the sponsor or or things like that. But I mean, you know, one thing you said about the 70s that 
I, 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 I can never, uh, you know, obviously things change in time, you know, time changes, time passes by th- different things, you know, go on, but, you know, today, and I'm, and I'm trying not to compare the 2020s, if you will, to the 1970s, but bear with me for a second in, in my point that I'm trying to make here, you know, we're looking at teams today, <coughs> excuse me, Hendrick Motorsports, Joe Gibbs Racing, Team Penske, Richard Childress Racing. These teams have been there consistently as winners or as champions since probably the the early, well, even go back to the 80s even. let's Because you know, Hendrick goes back to 83, 84. But, I mean, they've consistently you know, one, I mean, they've, they've had maybe a few off years here and there, but they consistently won and they continue to win to this day. And what I'm trying to contrast, Ben, is in the seventies, all the big teams we had back then, two in particular, and I, I have never been able to get any kind of an, not necessarily an answer, but I've never been able to understand, I guess, is how teams the two teams I'm thinking in particular are Petty Enterprises, which became Richard Petty Motorsports, which is now Petty, uh, what is it, Petty uh, GMS, GMS. Racing. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we've also have the Wood Brothers. How did they go away? I guess is probably the best way to phrase it when it came to success. I mean, once they start, when, I mean, especially like with Petty, once they hit the 80s, you know, Richard's win total obviously dra- dramatically went down. In fact, he didn't win a race, I think, in the, for his like, what was the last 10 years, I think it was, or something like that. Um, and then, you know, the Wood Brothers, obviously, they uh, they had some good drivers in, even into the 80s, but then, you know, they kind of fell by the wayside. How do you how do you quantify or explain how these teams who were so dynamic, they were the super teams of their era, they, they, they you know, they, 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 you know, the bottom almost dropped out and they've never been able to recover. I mean, how, is there a way that you can quantify that at all? Cause that's, yeah, that's something I've can. always wondered about. Yeah. I think it's called education okay. because I think people just learned uh, so much more about how to win and how to uh, I, maybe it's twofold It's money and education, because mm-hmm. I think they they've just, people have learned how to win in these cars and how to innovate and, and come up with ways to win and there's no disrespect to any of these teams not no disrespect to Richard Petty or the Wood Brothers any of them mm-hmm. but I think people have just learned so much about how cars react and how cars uh, have come from the you know how they've performed from era to era and then you have an army of engineers that have come into the sport that maybe weren't there at that era. Cause I know they weren't back in the sixties and seventies and eighties. And, and it's just innovation and it's education and it's, and they've sort of um, been passed a little bit uh, over the years. And, and uh, in other words, it's a widespread educational situation in the garage area. They've, there's no more secrets to be learned, I guess is the best way to put it. And if you do learn something, uh, it's, it's one of those situations to where it's, it's not a secret much for very long because, uh, a lot of, you know, this is what happened for a lot of, for a lot of teams, uh, a guy would learn something and 
then he would go to another race team and said, Hey, if you'll hire me, I'll tell you what I know, what they're right. doing down the street. Right. And okay. And then, well, that went on for quite some time, but now with all the innovation that's gone on in the sport, especially with this 2022 car we're in the middle of, there's not a whole lot of, to be learned with it. There's not a lot that can be done with it. I heard where Kevin Harvick said recently, there's, there's very little you can do to the car to make it do more. In other words, A, B, C, or D, that's pretty much all you can do to it. Right, right, right. So back to your original question, I just think there's no disrespect to Richard Petty or, or the Wood Brothers or any of these long-term teams. Uh, they just, there's just no more secrets to be found anymore. And they're, they're still capable of winning. It's everybody's just sort of caught up to them. Mm -hmm. And again, you've got 40 teams that can win now, not, not six, seven, eight teams like it used to be. And, uh, so there's a lot more competition in the win column than there used to be. Well, let me ask you this, and this is going to be a really hard question to answer. Okay. Of the teams we have today, you know, the organizations we've had, and again, we go back for some of them, even into the, you know, the mid eighties when they started the, you know, and they are even into the late seventies, uh, early eighties with, you know, when, like with Childress, he started, what was it? 81, I think it was, I believe uh, with Earnhardt, um, yep. you know, the, the, the point I'm making you know, is that these teams have been around and have been so successful for, at least 20 to 30 years, give, give or take. And do you ever see any of the current super teams, the big teams, you know, the, the Hendricks or the Childresses or the uh, Joe Gibbs or team Penske's, et cetera. Do you ever see them fa falling away? I guess, if you will, much like the Petties and the Wood brothers did after their heydays or, or do you think this will just continue to be like this for, you know, uh, throughout the rest of our lives and even into the lifetimes of, you know, our heirs, our kids and, and our grandkids? I mean, will these teams continue to be there, you know, 15, 20, 30, 40, 50 years from now and still be successful? Or will they, will time take catch up with them and they'll kind of, eh, for lack of a better word, maybe fade, maybe not necessarily fade away, but fade, if you know what I'm saying. Yeah. That's a tough question. You're right. That is a tough question to answer. I think that, I think you have to be careful to, to keep a price tag, to, to keep a, a cap on some of this, because you could, you could get to a point where, okay, well, money buys speed and is for me to be successful. I got to keep throwing money at it. And before you know it, you price yourself out of business. If that yeah. makes any sense. In other words, uh, Okay, for me, for uh, I'm Rick Hendrick, and for me to continue to win races to stay ahead of everybody, I got to spend more and more and more and more money. Uh, that's the only if that's the only way I can continue to win races, then yeah, that's that's the next hurdle I think NASCAR would have to worry about. Right, is because I mean we're we're currently driving in a really 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 expensive race car each and that's the next hurdle and if you're going to have to buy more wins by buying more speed and stand ahead of somebody else and if you're looking 20 years down the road oh boy i'm glad i don't own a race team let me say that <laughs> right, right. i'd rather i'd rather have the big house on the lake for what they're buying one race car for let's put it that way i i know is well there there are a few lakes around Salisbury, I will say that. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah. But, but by the way, I know the folks uh, uh, can't see us, but uh, I'm kind of emulating my buddy, Ben. Ben said had a beard for years. I'm trying to grow one. It's not getting there, by the way, too. Just kind of throwing that yeah. in there, too, as well. So, sure. but, uh, you know, one, one final question, Ben, and, you know, before yeah. we wrap up today's episode, you know, the 70s were such a great era, such a great decade. And not just for, you know, the big teams, but also, the, you know, it, it to me, it was probably the last uh, period, if you will, for the smaller teams, you know, the, the independents, the single car teams like that. I mean, you know, we, we've heard the story so many times and I'll, I'll reiterate it again here. Um, you know, the one guy who towed his car all the way from Milwaukee down to Charlotte to, for his, you know, to seek his fame and fortune is Alan Kowicki. And, yeah. you know, those stories, no matter how old they, you, they get, you just love to hear that it was a whole different era back then, you know, where guys would come from, you know, wherever, uh, you know, and, and kind of like, kind of like guys in Nashville, you know, they, they, they bring their guitar with them and they, they hope to become big country stars. It's kind of the same way with NASCAR. And a lot of these guys would, like I said, would, would tow their cars from wherever they were, you know, with maybe a few bucks in their pocket. And they had hoped and prayed that they can make successes for themselves. But again, going back to what I was saying about the seventies, the independent teams, the single car owners, the single car teams, um, that was kind of the, I don't want to say the beginning of the end, but it was certainly the last major period, I think, for a lot of the single car teams. Because once we got into the 80s, you know, that's when the proliferation of the bigger teams really became even bigger more there was more bigger teams coming on the scene um you know more organizations like hendrick when they came out in 83 84 um you know and then childress was starting to get build his program and then of course joe gibbs racing in the mid early to mid 90s they started their deal but is it fair to say that the 70s going into the early 80s was kind of the start if you will of the diminishment of the single car teams because that's one thing i miss today i mean yeah there's some single car teams still, you know, in, in race in, in the cup series in 2022, but, you know, and I, and I don't say this with, you know, ill respect. I say this with due respect, but a lot of them are, you know, back marker teams because they don't have the funding. They don't have the sponsorship. They don't have the parts. They don't have the equipment to really, you know, go head to head with, you know, the, the bigger drivers and the bigger teams. But I mean, the seventies, like I said, about the independence and that, was kind of that kind of that era was kind of like the beginning of the end for them, would you say? Yeah, I, I kind of think so, Jerry. I think first of all, racing, whether no matter what era you're looking at, racing has always been expensive, I believe. And even back in the days when I drove race cars on a local level, it was always expensive. And and even for me, even on a local level, there's never enough money for a racer unless you have the budgets of a you know, what's the old saying to make a million, you got to have a million or 2 million, you know, I mean, what's the, that there's an offshoot of that. What is it? Um, yeah, it's, to you always have a, to have to, be, to become a millionaire. You have to start first to be a, be a billionaire. That's how you become a millionaire. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You always need to, to be in racing. You always have to have a lot of money and it's always been that way. And, you know, I mean, the, I, what I feel bad about, uh, is the guys like the Dave Marcuses and mm -hmm. the, the James Hiltons who we sadly lost a couple of years ago, those guys, uh, this is all before the, uh, uh, 
the times the charters came along because it'd be great if you could go back and say here dave here's uh, 10 million for your troubles because or they say the late judy dunley but they put so much money into these race teams and when they walked away they had nothing to really show for it right and uh it'd be it's be it's kind of sad that that's the case but the question back to your question i mean i distinctly very quickly i distinctly remember back uh in the mid 70s benny parsons and dk Ulrich talking about at wilkesboro the cost of engines even back in the 70s how mm-hmm. much they were mm-hmm. they cost even back then so unlike other sports racing is always going to has always cost a lot of money the back marker guys have always had to scrap and, and for for money and yeah it's it's always been hard as each year that goes by, it seems to be harder and harder. So you have to have a lot of money to race. When I told my son at 10, 12 years old, I said, I love you dearly. I would do anything for you, but I can't buy a race team. Yeah. But I can, can put you through college and get your mechanical engineering degree. And you can spend somebody else's money like Richard Childress's <laughs> or, or Jack Roush's or Roger Penske's, but I can't do it. I, I just being honest. You see? So yeah, it's always been expensive, always will be. I just think that, uh, you know, the 70s was a great time for uh, for racing and for race teams and everybody to enjoy racing. And and uh, let me leave the, the broadcast with a quote from the late, great Davey Allison. Somebody asked him once, he said, what do you think about the good old days? And Davey said, brother, these are the good old days. And that was said in 1992, early 93 at Rockingham. And he could sort of see the writing on the wall that it was going to get expensive and hard to race. And he said, I asked him one time, would you ever have a cup series team? He said, no way. He said, I'm going to end my career with, with Robert Yates. And sadly he did because he lost his life in a helicopter crash, but he said he could, he sort of felt it. He knew where we were headed. He he knew it was going to be extremely expensive to continue. And that's where we are. So, Well, I'll, I mean, that obviously, you know, the Davy Ellison chapter was was a sad uh, uh, chapter in the sport, but I'll I'll leave the show. I'm going to wrap the show up with a kind of a humorous ending, if you will. Yeah, we right. got through the entire show talking about the 70s and we didn't mention one thing that almost embodied the 70s. Do you know what that is? It's not, it's not racing related. Let's see if you can get, if you can, if you're, you're on the same wavelength as me. (laughs) I don't know, Jerry. I'm not sure. It's a five letter word. Oh, I don't know. Disco. (laughs) Oh, disco. (laughs) Sure. I mean, the era of the Saturday night fever. I mean, all the, the, the clubs and that kind of thing. I mean, all right, I'll leave you with one. How about leisure suit? Oh my God, you're right. You are so, oh, so shoot right. me now. Please shoot me now. The exactly. kids of today would they'd be mortified if they had to if they had to wear a leisure suit. That's all I'm gonna say. Goodbye. I, I had one I had one leisure suit and it was one too many for me. That's all uh, I can say. So, what were we thinking, Jerry? That's right. What you know were what we thinking? Worth well, what we're think what we were thinking back then. We're, I can say what we're thinking about, but now we're damn old. That's what we're <laughs> oh, oh, we've done. Let's just say, don't do what we did. If you listen to your parents, children, 
Don't do what we did. Just listen to your parents. We'll save you a lot of grief. This is true. Very, very true. So, and with that, we're going to put a wrap on episode number 54 of Lifetime and NASCAR podcast. My good buddy, Ben White, myself, Jerry Bunkowski, another great show in the books here. And, you know, the, the talking about the seventies, I, it was just, it really brings back a lot of memories. And that's one of the big hallmarks. And, and I'm being very serious in saying this one of the big hallmarks of this podcast, a lifetime in NASCAR that, you know, we do talk about so much about the past and, you know, we do, we do this podcast for a variety of reasons, but the most important thing I, I feel Ben is that we are, you know, you mentioned earlier about education and learning uh, in this sport. Yeah. And I think that's one of the things that I really enjoy most about this podcast is that we're really educating and uh, you know, teaching some of the you know, the fans, especially the young ones who, you know, weren't around back then in, in the day, they're, they're learning about how NASCAR was back then. Because, you know, I, 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 I can't tell you, I mean, I'm sure you've had the same situation. I can't tell you the number of fans that I've talked to over the years who, you know, believe that NASCAR has been around since two, you know, since two AD, you know, I mean, it's been that long when it's really NASCAR has only been around here now for not even 80 years and 74 years, 74 years. Exactly. And, you know, that's one of the reasons why I like doing this podcast with you because a, we get along so well, but more Mm -hmm. importantly, we're, we're conveying, um, you know, an education We're we're kind of teaching, we're kind of like substitute teachers, if you will, <laughs> in a way, because, you know, people really learn a lot from these podcasts. I still learn a lot from this. And, you know, you are just an incredible treasure, uh, treasure trove when it comes to knowledge and stories and things like that. So uh, I just wanted to say that to, to wrap up this episode, because, you know, this was really an enjoyable episode. Everyone we do is, is enjoyable. But, you know, when you start talking about the 70s, I mean, that's kind of you know, our era, Ben, I mean, you're, mm-hmm. you're in my era. That's kind of when, you know, we kind of came to, uh, uh, I don't want to say we came to fruition, but I mean, you know, we, we went to high school then, we graduated from high school then, we start, you know, went to college, and then we kind of started our all, all adult life all in the, in the 70s and into the early 80s. So it really brought back a lot of uh, good memories. So good topic this week, as always, and uh, we will catch you next week, Ben, and uh, I'm Jerry Bunkowski, Ben White and Jerry Bunkowski, and thanks everyone for listening to this episode of the Life and the NASCAR Podcast. Hope you enjoyed, have a good weekend, and we will catch you next week on episode number, what is it, 5-5 of the Life and NASCAR Podcast right here. Take care, everyone, have a good week. For Ben White, I'm Jerry Bunkowski. We'll talk to you soon. A Lifetime in NASCAR is hosted by Ben White and Jerry Bunkowski and produced by Josh Mull. A Lifetime in NASCAR is a proud member of the Out of the Group Podcast Network and is available on all major podcasting platforms. Visit GroovyMotorsports.com for more shows and don't forget to check out the Out of the Group Weekly Viewer's Guide. The Weekly Viewer's Guide is fresh every week of the season and includes exclusive content from myself and Ben White you won't find anywhere else. Get it every week. It's all fresh, it's all free, and it's all on GroovyMotorsports.com.
Eric Estep here. This episode is brought to you by Forney Industries. Get it done with green. Forney offers a full line of welding and plasma cutting machines, metalworking accessories, and more. For do-it-yourselfers all the way to professional metalworkers, Forney has everything you need for your next project. Shop Forney's top-of-the-line products at forneyind.com. That's Forney, F-O-R-N-E-Y, ind, I-N-D.com, or at an authorized Forney dealer near you.